The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances. Whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities, or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death, we all want to know, what happened next? To find out, listen to Womanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Anybody else notice that one of Trump's stochastic terrorists went to Barack Obama's house to assassinate him last week? Or was it just me? And that a Washington judge was having a hard time last night finding an excuse to hold this scumbag without bail, hold the would-be assassin without bail? And that Trump had doxed Obama and Trump had finally found a sucker willing to do his lethal bidding for him and park his van full of ammo and weapons a few blocks from Obama's home and live stream himself threatening Jamie Raskin and Kevin McCarthy and oh, he was going to take his van to Maryland to a federal facility containing a nuclear research reactor and blow up the van and the nuclear reactor. And I mean, am I the only one seeing this anywhere? Trump, crazier and more dangerous by the minute, is finally, clearly, and inextricably linked to a guy ready to answer Trump's constant drumbeat to try to get one of his cultists to kill without telling them to kill, and thus leaving himself open to prosecution for killing or for incitement to kill, and the Department of Justice is still remaining asleep at the switch? The U.S. magistrate judge in D.C., himself a former terrorist prosecutor, Zia M. Farouki, managed to avoid having to release Trump's figurative flying monkey, his name is Taylor Taranto, by keeping him in stir overnight and putting the onus on the government to answer the judge's question. If the original charges against this would-be political murderer Taranto were simply leftover trespassing accusations from January 6th, and the government wanted him held without bail because he's a flight risk. What if the judge finds he's not a flight risk? Is it enough 
that threatening key Democratic and Republican congressmen and talking about going to a government nuclear reactor and blowing up your van next to it. Oh, and responding to one former president's publishing of another former president's home address by going to that address with a van full of weapons of death. Is that, quote, clear, convincing evidence of a danger to the public? And even if it is, does that mean the judge can really hold him in jail? Yeah, you guys just let Toronto loose while the lot of you argue over how many angels can dance on the head of this figurative pin. And, you know, if he goes back to Obama's neighborhood or, I don't know, tries to ram the White House with his van full of ammo while screaming Trump is God as he does so, maybe then prosecutors can indict him for various vehicular and parking offenses. Christ! When a messed up man angry over the leak, over the impending overturning of Roe v. Wade, actually found himself near Brett Kavanaugh's home a year ago, June, armed to the teeth, he called 911 himself. He basically asked them to stop him before he did something, something terrible. And he was arrested minutes later without incident. And Republicans consider this roughly equivalent to the crucifixion of Christ. Even though the man stopped, thought, reconsidered, did not act, did not get close, surrendered to the authorities and prosecution. That is the, quote, Brett Kavanaugh assassination attempt. And I don't want to play Can You Top This with Lunatics. But that event, compared to Taylor Toronto reading a post by Trump, doxing Obama and responding like Reggie Jackson in the movie The Naked Gun and taking his traveling gun show to Obama's neighborhood while evading arrest for a day, and he hasn't shown remorse or concern for anything except whether or not he had enough bars to keep his live stream going, that that is what we're dealing with here, and we weren't sure that we could keep him in jail overnight. Oh, and he was also presumably worried about whether or not he was pleasing his psychopathic Mar-a-Lago master. Trump's ultimate intentions have been evident since 2016. He is not a human being in the conventional use of the term. Other people do not exist to him. They are either impediments to what he wants or means by which he can get what he wants. He has a hit list. It changes from week to week, sometimes from hour to hour. He mused about his Second Amendment folks taking care of Hillary Clinton for him during the 2016 campaign. He wanted people to kill senators and congressmen and anybody else they could find at the Capitol so Biden would not be certified as president on January 6th. He directed this beam of murder by proxy at the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg. He aims it at Jack Smith every second or third day. And last week, it was Obama's turn. And not only has nobody figured out how to hold Trump responsible for this, and this is terrorism. Donald Trump is a terrorist. But clearly, the Justice Department is struggling just to keep the proxy assassin in jail overnight. Toronto is a direct and serious threat to the public, wrote the assistant U.S. attorneys in a 26-page sentencing recommendation to the judge. Toronto's own words and actions demonstrate that he is a direct threat to multiple political figures, as well as the public at large. The risk that Toronto poses if released is high, and the severity of the consequences that could result are catastrophic. 
And the judge is openly concerned and worried about what looks like PTSD from his tour in Iraq and the fact that Toronto also says he came to D.C. after Kevin McCarthy, the putts, made that grandstanding offer to show January 6th defendants all the exculpatory video that, oh, sorry, it isn't exculpatory. That's why Tucker Carlson only showed three minutes of it. And that, golly, Toronto keeps denying facts and reality, and he's delusional, and that kind of makes him more of a danger than even the average would-be ex-presidential assassin. And it's as if the judge is 99% of the way there, but just can't find that last 1% where you at least order him held pending psychiatric evaluation. Rather than listen to his public defender explain that Toronto's wife is absolutely ready to keep an eye on her husband in their home back in Washington state while he's out on bail, because naturally a guy willing to threaten to blow up a government nuclear reactor and drive a van full of weapons over to Barack's house, he would never harm his wife, would he? This is from the Washington Post last night. Quote, Toronto allegedly recorded himself walking in the neighborhood saying he was looking for, quote, entrance points and, quote, tunnels underneath their houses, according to prosecutors, referring to Obama's and the Podesta's house. Apparently, John Podesta, former chairman of Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign, who lives nearby. Toronto also said he had control of the block and repeatedly stated that he was trying to get a shot and a good angle on a shot, prosecutors claimed. Nah, he's fine. You don't think he's a flight risk, Judge? Just just let him go. What harm could he really do out there? I mean, this guy doesn't even know there aren't any tunnels. Ha <laughs> ha, what a loser. Whiskey sours, everyone? This is insane. And it remains insane that we let Trump continue year after year, in venue after venue, with victim after victim, with his who will rid me of this turbulent priest bullshit. Except now there is an actual identifiable sucker, the ultimate Trump mark, the remote-controlled buffoon, stupid enough and demented enough and whacked out enough to let Trump manipulate him like a drone. Trump is a terrorist. He tried to get people to start a violent revolution to overthrow the government, and his stochastic threats against dozens and dozens of Americans have become so routine and so pronounced that if Trump's name had been Khalid Sheikh Trump, he would have been in Gitmo since 2015. He just tried to get somebody, and this somebody turns out to be named Taylor Taranto, to go over to Obama's house and kill him. I mean, I took three days off from this podcast for the first time this year, and I wondered if I was letting people down, and our justice system looks at Taylor Toronto and Donald Trump and finds reasons not to put them in jail and lose their records. This has got to stop, and if it has to stop because a judge named Zia M. Faruqi says, yeah, he's a, a flight risk, whatever, the government can only hold him... 40 years, then so be it, because this will end, and if it does not end with somebody standing up for the right and, you know, against Trump's stochastic terrorism and the assassination of ex-presidents, it's going to end some other way, and that actually will not be an end. It will be the beginning of something, and that something will be very dark and not at all remote-controlled or at some kind of distance from everybody or via proxy, and it will not be stochastic. (laughs) 
All right, let's lighten the mood and go from Trump-inspired assassination attempts to mere coup attempts. Jack Smith has clearly expanded his investigations into the state of, any guesses? Arizona. First, ABC News reported that Trump tried a Georgia in Arizona, tried to get the then-Governor Doug Ducey to just find him some more votes, and that Trump had Mike Pence call Ducey to pressure him. Pence clearly called him. He confirms that. There is actually no evidence that Pence actually pressured him, beyond just the fact of the phone call, of course. In an intriguing twist, it does look like Jack Smith beat the news media to Arizona. The Arizona Republic newspaper now reporting that the special counsel's office issued two subpoenas to the office of the Arizona Secretary of State, apparently in May, looking for information about the lawsuits against the state by the Trump campaign and by the former Arizona GOP chair Kelly Ward, who is not of this earth, alleging fraud and errors in the vote in Arizona. This would suggest this is about the wire fraud charges Smith seems to be assembling against Trump for raising money to cure a stolen election he knew was not stolen. The newspaper reports Jack Smith has not contacted ex-Governor Ducey. The Washington Post reports Ducey cannot understand why Smith hasn't. Also, the Tucker Carlson Maria Bartiromo producer who settled with Fox for $12 million, she has reportedly been contacted by Smith's office. And one of the centerpieces to the Trump defense, besides trying to get his cultists to kill everybody, is that all the documents were declassified, that he had a standing order to declassify anything removed from the Oval Office standing order that declassified everything that was on the Trump confession tape. Well, guess what? The standing order does not exist. I know you're shocked. I should give you a minute. Sit down. Have a whiskey sour. Bloomberg News filed a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit last August asking the Justice Department and the Director of National Intelligence to produce such an order or at least confirm its existence in redacted form, and they don't have it. So Trump will naturally now say that he took it with him, too, and it was automatically self-declassifying, and if you don't like that, he'll sick Taylor Taranto on you. And then there is the continuing saga of Trump's lawyers. And I think this is where the whole case is going to break, because there's nothing more scared than a scared lawyer. The Wall Street Journal rounds up the usual suspects. Powell again, Jenna Ellis, Cheesebro, Mike Roman, who may have flipped, and adds in a Powell associate named Emily Newman, who is new on my scorecard anyway. And if you remember Lynn Wood, the one who made Sidney Powell seem sane and made Rudy Giuliani seem sober. On Tuesday, Lynn Wood wrote to the general counsel of the Georgia State Bar requesting permission to retire. Retire from being a lawyer, and not just in Georgia. He would be giving up his right to practice law anywhere in the country. Why? Because after 2020, there are two disciplinary proceedings against him and against his law license in Georgia alone. Retiring 
is less humiliating. Can't be disbarred if you aren't barred in the first place, huh? Taps head like in meme. And now we go back to Rudy. There was a nugget in that Wall Street Journal piece that underscores the whole idea that Rudy's little proffer meeting, where he told them what he'd be willing to tell them, was neither little nor just a proffer. The journal wrote, federal prosecutors also recently interviewed Rudy Giuliani, who served a Trump personal lawyer at the time, for roughly eight hours on topics including Powell. They were interested. Wait, 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 wait. Eight hours. Eight hours? They talked to Rudy Giuliani for eight hours? Do you understand what is involved in talking to Rudy Giuliani for eight hours? The longest I ever managed was eight minutes, and that was before everybody knew he was crazy. I keep coming back to this same thought. There is more to the Giuliani story. There is more to the Giuliani story. There is more to the Giuliani story. The son of a bitch must have flipped. Thank you, Nancy Faust. Also of interest here, uh, nothing else against Trump or about Trump. I mean, I have to have covered all of it. Anyway, there is this little bit of breaking news that according to Miles Taylor, who says he got stuck in the middle of this with Trump in 2017, that Trump was negotiating to pull all U.S. troops out of Afghanistan like overnight and replace them with his own version of the Wagner Group, a private army loyal to Trump of 5,000 mercenaries organized by Eric Prince of Blackwater Infamy, allegiant only to Trump and then ready to head to Venezuela to topple a government there as soon as they mopped up the Taliban. But not to worry, because if Trump ever did return to the White House, he'd never actually do that. He wouldn't run a private army of 5,000 guys who'd be his real-life version of Buzz Windrip's Minutemen in It Can't Happen Here. He'd have 50,000. That's next. This is Countdown. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, 
the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Countdown. With Keith Olbermann. Postscripts to the news, some headlines, some updates, some snarks, some predictions. Dateline Washington, Miles Taylor, the former Trump staffer, revealing that in his new upcoming book, recounting his involvement in attempting to stop overtures between Trump figures and the notorious Iraq mercenary boss Eric Prince to get Trump his own private 5,000-man mercenary army akin to Russia's Wagner Group. Trump thought he could pull U.S. troops out of Afghanistan overnight and could replace them with a Trump prince private army or use a similar force to then overthrow the elected government of, no, not here, of Venezuela. Why pay to overthrow the elected government here when you could just use all those free militias and Tarantos? Taylor's book is called Blowback. He will also be joining our little iHeart political coven here with a new podcast series called The Whistleblowers. That starts next week, and I'll tell you more about it then. Dateline New York semaphore news with a little relevant ancient history about the noble inheritor of the Kennedy political dynasty. It quotes former New York Governor Elliot Spitzer about the day in 2006 when RFK Jr. went to Spitzer's office to talk about running to replace Spitzer as the New York State Attorney General. Quote, in a meeting in Spitzer's office, Kennedy asked whether he could continue to give paid speeches to outside groups while he was attorney general, Spitzer told Semaphore. The would-be candidate explained that his responsibilities to his six children from two marriages had left him with expenses that simply couldn't be covered by a government salary. Spitzer, incredulous, told him that there was no way a top law enforcement officer could go around getting paid for speeches. Kennedy didn't run for office, end quote. So see, that's how we get him to drop this sham Trojan horse presidential bid. Remind him the job only pays 400K plus 50,000 in expenses. Next thing you'll know, you'll be hearing this. Good evening. This is day 32 of the hunt for Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Ran off stage during a campaign speech after being slipped a note with a dollar figure written on it and has not been seen since. 
you again, Nancy Faust. Dateline Portland, Oregon. Oregon Public Broadcasting CEO and President Steve Bass will step away from that post next year after 17 years at it. Bass previously led WGBH in Boston and Public TV in Nashville, but that's not why I'm mentioning him. Steve plans to spend more time with his family now and with his clarinet. He is a top classical performer on that instrument. In fact, he started on that instrument in Peter DeLuke's music class at Farragut School in Hastings-on-Hudson, New York in 1966. I know this because I was at the next desk trying to learn how to work the saxophone in Mr. DeLuke's music class. Happily, my saxophone had a broken reed piece, and I could still be blowing into it today, 57 years later, and still not have made anything that sounded anything like music. Steve's clarinet obviously was just fine. All the best, my friend. Dateline New York, two passings to note. Dr. Frank Field, a weatherman who was a New York City Television Institute for 40 years and a national figure on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and The Tomorrow Show with Tom Snyder, has died at the age of 100. Dr. Frank Field was an utterly deadpan weatherman, but that held and hid a deeply anti-establishment sense of humor. After his retirement, Field told the New York Daily News that the jokes Carson made at his expense were worth suffering, quoting him, he really gave me a safety rope. It was absolutely a lock. You couldn't fire Frank Field. And in strange juxtaposition, New York TV critic Marvin Kitman has died at 93. Kitman wrote for the New York newspaper Newsday from Long Island and liked little of what he saw. He was also an expert on the life of the first president and wrote a brilliant puncturing book called George Washington's Expense Account, which revealed that the father of the country also was the father of the creative use of receipts. Kitman was a favorite of Bill O'Reilly's as O'Reilly grew up on Long Island, and O'Reilly, in fact, asked him to write the authorized Bill O'Reilly biography. Kitman wrote it. It was stunningly fair. It praised O'Reilly's success and explained that, and it exposed the fabrications in his resume and, without saying so, implied that O'Reilly was beaten by his father as a child and that that explained everything. O'Reilly disowned the book and Kitman. Marvin Kitman later asked to write my biography, and I said I was flattered, and I thanked him for it, but I said, you know, come on. I wouldn't even read that. Still ahead, nobody gets anywhere without a lucky break. Mine was a calendar that looked a lot like this month's. July 4th was in the middle of the week that year, too. And when a radio network sportscaster quit, his boss literally had only like six business days to find somebody cheap who did not have a job to replace him. That described me to a T. Things I promise not to tell coming up. First time for the Daily Roundup of the Miscreants, Morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's... Worst persons in the world. LeBron's Laura Ingram. Bill O'Reilly's former guest host reposting a Politico article on the new Republican plan to defund the police to go after the FBI and DOJ. Ingram added the dialogue, or to the dialogue, this pithy observation. They should defund Jack Smith. Or, or here's an alternative suggestion, Laura. Just a thought. They could demote him by moving Jack Smith out of primetime and sticking him in the 7 o'clock hour. Just a thought. 
Runners up, all of us. So where were you and what were you doing on July 4th in the year 122,977 BC? Because according to some scientists interpreting data from the U.S. National Centers for Environmental Prediction, Tuesday, this July 4th, it may have been the hottest day on Earth in 125,000 years. That would be 122,977 B.C., July 4th. But no, there's no climate change. It's not accelerating far faster than anybody is willing to admit. We aren't going to render the entire area surrounding the equator unlivable for humans within a decade or two and send hundreds of millions of climate refugees to every corner of this planet. Let's just dig more oil wells. That'll solve it. But our winner, Will Welch, editor-in-chief of GQ, a magazine and website with which I had a pretty good relationship in 2016 and 2017 until, and I've never mentioned this before, they one day summarily fired the producer of our video series, The Resistance, even though The Resistance had made them at least a million dollars on the pretext that they needed to save money. The producer's name was Dorena Newton, and from the moment the series started, we just did not get along. Her experience was fashion and celebrity videos, and mine wasn't. We never agreed on anything. She tried to get off the assignment, I tried to get her removed from the assignment, and then one day, I realized one of her ideas was really great and much better than anything that I was thinking of. And like the next day, she realized that one of my ideas was really great and better than anything she was thinking about. And from that day forward, we were a team. We really worked hard to find a place in the middle and the series got 375 million views for 170 episodes and it earned GQ money and so they fired her. So I quit on the spot. That moment. I'm not loyal to employees. I'm loyal to colleagues. Anyway, that was really the last thing I ever had to do with GQ, and I thought it was the low watermark for GQ until this sequence of events broke yesterday. On Monday, GQ posted a story called How Warner Bros. Discovery CEO David Zaslav Became Public Enemy Number One in Hollywood. The article mentions Zaslav's recent unprecedented run. He hired Chris Licht. He and Licht destroyed CNN. He then fired Chris Licht. He dismembered Turner Classic Movies. The article written by Jason Bailey compared Zaslav to the Richard Gere corporate character in Pretty Woman and to Logan Roy in Succession, and it called him perhaps the most hated man in Hollywood. And then, suddenly, it didn't call him that. GQ reposted the article with 500 fewer words in it without any of those nasty remarks. The writer Jason Bailey demanded GQ take his name off the article. GQ said it didn't publish articles without bylines and would have to kill the article, and Bailey said fine. And now, the second version of this article disappeared from the website without any public explanation by GQ. GQ later claimed the piece had been posted without proper editing, which might have been believable, except a spokesman for Zaslav's company, Warner Bros. Discovery, boasted that, quote, we contacted the outlet and asked that numerous inaccuracies be corrected. In the process of doing so, the editors ultimately decided to pull the piece. The anonymous spokesperson also said the writer had never contacted Warner Bros. for fact-checking, which, of course, is not how that works. 
wait, it gets worse. GQ is owned by Condé Nast, which is in turn owned by Advanced Publications. And Advanced Publications is in turn a major shareholder in Warner Bros. Discovery. But wait, it gets even worse than that worse. Variety is reporting that the GQ editor-in-chief, this Will Welch, quote, is producing a movie at Warner Bros. titled The Great Chinese Art Heist. Sources say Welch was involved in the discussions surrounding the removal of Bailey's initial story and made the call to pull the revamped story. Those same sources say Warner Bros. Discovery complained about the initial story to two GQ editors, one of whom was Welch. So Zaslav of Warner Bros. didn't like a story about himself, so somebody called GQ, which is co-owned with Warner Bros., and they reportedly called this editor Welch, who is the producer of a movie at Warner Bros., and he got 500 words taken out of the story and then killed it outright. Am I reading this correctly? I can't count how many conflicts of interest there are in there. I literally, I don't know if it's 80 or 90, but... I've got a really good idea for David Zaslav and Warner Bros. This Will Welch guy? Sounds like you've found your next CEO of CNN. Huh? Huh? In the interim, he's simply today's worst person in the Bros world! I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road 
is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just ahead, nothing gets me more nostalgic than when July 4th falls in the middle of a work week, because that, in part, is why my career got started at all. 44 years ago, this week, I'll tell you that story in a brand new edition of Things I Promised Not to Tell. First, time to feature another dog in need. You can help every dog has its day. Three of them, actually. Angelina, Lil Bit, and Prince. Three Malteses in Georgia. Their human mom loved them. Dad, not so much. When mom died, dad put them in a cage on an outdoor porch, even though it was 90 degrees out. American Maltese Association Rescue has gotten him to surrender them. They were malnourished, rotten teeth, matted hair. We think all three will make it, but there have been and will be expenses. You know my feeling towards Malteses. Any help you can be to them, I'll appreciate it. There's a fundraiser at Giving Grid, and you can find them there under GA Neglected Trio, or just look for them on my Twitter feeds. Angelina thanks you, Lil Bit thanks you, Prince thanks you, and I thank you as well. Now to the number one story on the countdown and things I promise not to tell and my favorite topic, me. On Monday, July 2nd, 1979, a man named Maury Trumbull walked into his boss's office at United Press International in the old Daily News building in New York and quit. He had been offered a real job as the sports director of the NBC radio network, and he would happily finish out the next two weeks as the sports director of UPI's radio network. And then, bye. And Maury's boss was screwed. Maury's boss had three sportscasters. Trumbull was not just the boss. He also did the evening sportscasting shift like four or five days a week. And just four months earlier, they had moved one of the sportscasters over to be the new business reporter. And to replace him, they had to listen to the audition tapes of 200 sportscasters from across the country. And not one of them was really any good. Not even as good as Maury Trumbull. And so they hired the least bad of them, and they were hoping for the best, and suddenly the new guy was the second senior man on the staff. And even though you have not heard of UPI's radio network, except when I've mentioned it in this series, it was a very big deal. On July 2nd, 1979, there were about a thousand radio stations affiliated with it in this country. And though few of them were in the top 50 cities... And fewer still ran the sportscasts that Maury Trumbull and Sam Rosen and Jack Russell did in those 50 cities. The smaller the market was, the bigger the star Maury and Sam and now Jack were. And what made it worse, of course, was that it was Monday, July 2nd, which meant the actual 4th of July holiday was Wednesday, which meant that nobody but nobody would be in the office almost anywhere in American radio for at least the next few days. 
And in those times when the long three-day weekend, when you got Monday off, was just becoming acceptable, this thing, July 4th in the middle of the week, was an excuse for a four-day weekend or a five-day weekend, or I'll just take the whole week off. And that meant whoever would be doing Maury Trumbull's UPI sportscasts as of Monday, July 16th, 1979, he basically could not currently have a job because he'd have to quit it. Because when he quit it, he would have to give two weeks notice. And even if Maury's boss figured out who to hire in the next hour and got him approved by his own boss, there was literally no way the new guy could start on the 16th and he'd have to get his boss's approval. And he didn't know where his boss was because his boss was taking like an eight-day weekend. So now Maury Trumbull's boss was looking at the new guy starting no sooner than July 23rd. Or... He suddenly realized with a shudder, what if the new guy had to move to New York from anywhere further away from them than like Albany or Jersey or something? So that's when Maury Trumbull's boss, well, he thought that wasn't true anymore. He was Maury Trumbull's ex-boss, wasn't he? For all the trouble Maury had just caused him, at least that part was good news. Maury Trumbull's ex-boss made his decision. I'll just hire that kid from Westchester, Stan Sabick said to himself. I don't know how I'll convince Shortino to take on a kid with absolutely no full-time professional experience, but I'll figure it out. Stan Sabick was the bureau chief of UPI Audio, and Shortino was his boss, Frank Shortino, the network general manager. And Frank was already old enough to really dislike anybody much younger than he was, which is why the youngest person in the New York headquarters that day was 33. And Shortino didn't really trust her. And suddenly it came to him. And Stan Sabick smiled. He rolled that phrase over in his head. No full-time professional experience. And he smiled again. My God, we only have to pay the kids 16000 a year. We'll save thirty grand on salary. My mother did not even step out into the warmth and the bright sunshine of the pre-holiday afternoon. Keith, phone. I was lying there on our very sketchy front lawn, listening to my home-built Walkman and working on my tan, and trying not to think of the fact that it was now the week of July 4th, which was the deadline I had given myself for just sitting around working on my tan, after I surprised myself and my family and my friends and especially my professors by actually graduating from Cornell on time in seven semesters, the last of which contained 28 credits in 10 different courses, a juggling act so arduous that I will still all these years later have dreams in which it is graduation morning, May 28, 1979, and I suddenly realize I have forgotten an entire course and I must read 3,000 pages or write 500 pages or both before noon or I will not graduate on time and I will have to go back and start all over again in, well, if it's a really stressful period of time in my life, I will have to go back and start all over again in the third grade as an adult in those chairs. Mrs. Weiner? I'm stuck in the chair again, possibly because I'm 64 years old. Keith, it's Roger Norum. My heart suddenly raced. Roger Norum was my contact at a radio network I had basically known nothing about even three months earlier. It was called UPI Audio. A friend of a friend of a friend of a friend had referred me to a news editor there named Art McAloon. And I went into the UPI Audio offices on 42nd Street in my best suit, 
with absolutely no worry that I'd ever forget a name like Art McAloon. And out came a very quiet man with a kind face and a big round beard and a big round curly head of hair. And he proceeded to explain very quietly that he was not Art McAloon and Art had quit, but not before passing me on to him, Roger Norum. Before I knew it, Roger had in turn passed me on to a sportscaster named Sam Rosen. I have introduced you to him here before. He made such an impression on me that my last Cornell English paper was supposed to be a quick profile of somebody interesting I had just met, and I chose Sam over somebody else I had met the same day, and the other guy was named Bob Iger. Anyway, Sam had been startled at the tape of my college sportscasts and had pronounced it twice as good as the guy they had just hired, who was now Stan Sabick's second senior sportscaster. And before I knew it, Sam had given the tape to Stan, and Stan had invited me back into New York for a formal interview, and Stan had said, you will hear this a lot in this business, but give me a little time. I think I can guarantee you six, seven weeks of vacation relief this summer, some sports, some news, if you don't mind doing both. Roger Norum had some interesting news for me on that phone call. You may have guessed it was about Maury Trumbull resigning from UPI and going to NBC. It's the talk of the place right now. He's already packing. They'll have to move fast, and, and with the holiday, there's no way they can bring in people for interviews or have a full search to replace him. You should give them till Thursday, the 5th, and then and call Stan, unless he calls you first. I mean, they really loved your tape. Stan told people about it. He was very excited. It's the old cliche, Keith, about being in the right place at the right time. And, and by the way, if you can make it over, you are cordially invited to the annual Norum Family Fourth of July Bash. We're in Westchester, too. I never once spoke to Roger Norum that he did not invite me to a Norum bash. He had them for all major holidays, and I believe for lesser events like the Westminster Dog Show and Moroccan Independence Day. He was a lovely man, and while he was a fine newsman, he was far better at kindness and favors like the one he was doing me on that July afternoon so long ago. Needless to say, I was silent and pretty much breathless for the rest of July 2nd, 1979, as hard as that might be for you to believe. I explained to my folks what might be going on, how just as I was going to make myself start worrying about actually getting a job, maybe in Atlanta, I might have just gotten a job a 40-minute train ride away. Based on what Stan Sabig had said about getting me vacation relief work, I suspected he would offer me something on a temporary basis to see if I could actually do it. But still, if even that actually happened, this was my chance to break into professional radio at probably the peak of professional radio's post-war importance and competitiveness and expansion and to break in in New York City at a network. My rivals for every job I would seek for the next 20 years or 30 years or 50 years would be happy to be breaking in in Keokuk, Iowa. No offense, Keokuk. And I would be on the network they would hear as they arrived to do the morning shift at 4.30 a.m. in Keokuk. I do not remember sleeping that night. Certainly not well. Still, I am confident that I remember this correctly. On Tuesday, July 3rd, 1979, I was back out on the Olderman family tanning lawn, 20 feet from the driveway, just afternoon when the front door opened and Mom said it again. Keith, phone, someone named Stan. Keith Stan Sabic, he laughed. Stan laughed a lot. 
Stan and I had a loud fight 14 months later that got me fired and then unfired hours later. Stan laughed in the middle of all that twice. Tired of lying around the pool yet? I lied and said yes. Of course, there was no pool. Just my lawn. I don't know if you've heard. He said it in such a way that confirmed that he was confident I had heard and Norm or Rosen or somebody had called to tell me. But my sports director quit to go to NBC. I need a full-time sportscaster to replace him. You interested? Prepared as I was for the offer of part-time work, I was stunned on top of stunned. Full-time, Stan? Did you say full-time? Stan laughed. Yes. 16,000. No negotiations. Mostly nights. Some mornings. Some ball games you get to cover. Split days off. You're not going to have a weekend for a couple of years, probably. Can you come in Thursday to fill out the job application for the job I just hired you for? He laughed again. Ever since I have associated the 4th of July with the start of my career, but especially those years when the week with the 4th in it is in the middle of the week just like that and makes it more difficult for employers to hire anybody except the cheap and the unemployed. Turns out that Wednesday, July 4th calendar is not a frequent thing. Happened in 1979, happened again in 1990, 2001, 2007, 2018. Not scheduled to happen again until 2029, barring major breaking news developments. A week to the day that Stan Sabick had called, I was on the air at UPI. I wasn't supposed to be. I was just supposed to be watching the morning shift with Sam Rosen. And then finally he said, so do you think you got the hang of it? And I said, well, I guess so. And he said, good, because you're on at 945. I was so scared I had an out-of-body experience. 30 days after Stan Sabick called on July 3rd, I was on my own on the night shift, maybe the seventh time when the Yankee catcher Thurman Munson was killed when he crashed his private plane, and I had to call his teammates for interviews and still do the sportscast every hour. By October, they had put me on a plane to go cover the National League playoffs. Six months after he called, Stan and Sam Rosen and I were covering the 1980 Winter Olympics for UPI Radio, and our stuff was playing on radio stations around the world. But all these years later, none of that compares to the sensation of that phone call and the realization that my career had really started. At 48 hours later, I was walking into UPI's offices as a pro. Plus, I got the first shock of my career. Good news, Stan said and laughed. That stringing work you did for UPI, all those Cornell football games you covered for $15 a game. The union says, guess what? They count towards your professional experience, so you won't be starting at just 16000 You get credited with experience for all that stringing. You got exactly six days' worth of credit. Congratulations. You'll be starting at $16,025 a year. And Stan Sabick laughed. And yes, I will play you that first sportscast if you want to hear it in its entirety in just a moment. 
first. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Here are the credits. Most of the music was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel. They are the Countdown musical directors. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend Larry David. Everything else is pretty much my fault. Don't forget, Countdown is now also available on YouTube with neat animated versions of me. Subscribe there, too. Give yourself options. Vote once, vote twice. So that's Countdown for this, the 912th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him again while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow. Bulletins as the news warrants. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Stations Live Sports will begin, preceded by a one-second tone. Coming up 10 seconds from Mark. Good morning. Three members of the Houston Astros named this morning to manager Tommy Lasorda's National League pitching staff for next Tuesday's All-Star Game. Top winner Joe Necro tapped by Lasorda along with Joaquin Andujar and reliever Joe Sambito. Rounding out the staff, veteran Steve Carlton of Philadelphia and Gaylord Perry of the Padres, Steve Rogers of Montreal, the Cubs Bruce Suter, and Cincinnati's Mike Lacoste. And speaking of the All-Stars, you would think Don Baylor and his 80 RBI would be a shoe-in for the AL outfield. Baylor drove in another run last night as the Angels whipped Boston six to nothing, but matter of fact, he placed 14th in the voting. The most important thing for me right now is just to, to win on this ball club. A lot of people brought up the, the all-star thing, and I can't do anything about that. You know, those voting and things, but I can do something about this ball club. You know, if I produce on this club, we won. When they did last night as Nolan Ryan struck out 12, that puts California a half game up on Texas in the West. Elsewhere in the American, the Orioles' lead is up to three in the East. They beat Oakland by the score of 7-3. It was the Blue Jays 7, Milwaukee 1, Minnesota over Detroit 5-3 as Jerry Kuzman won his 11th. The White Sox stopped Texas 5-4 and Cleveland over KC 8-2. The New York Yankees were off, but they made an important move for their pennant hopes, the activation of injured relief pitcher Rich Gossage. Over in the National, Montreal's Eastern lead is up to 5 a half. Bill Lee blanked the Dodgers 3-zip. Phillies over the Giants 4-2. The Cardinals beating Cincinnati 6-3 and Chicago 7, Atlanta 4. At the Pan Am Games in San Juan, a big upset in the 800-meter run. American James Robinson shocking Cuban Olympic champ Alberto Juan The U.S. boosted its gold medal total to 81. Both the men's and women's basketball teams remain undefeated. And for the second time in his career, crack Montreal Canadiens goaltender Ken Dryden has called it quits. Dryden going back to the law book at the age of 31. This time it looks permanent, though the Habs say the big goalie is welcome back at any time. From the sports desk of United Press International, I'm Keith Olbermann. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. 
Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.